Good evening, Two Cities Church. Glad to have you guys here with us. My name is Caleb Dubik. I'm one of the pastors here at Two Cities Church. You know, one thing I do every night before I go to bed, as much as I can, is just take time to journal and process my day, try to think about what the Lord has for me. One of the questions I answer every single night is, what is something I need to be doing tomorrow? And after a couple of years of trying to process that, really, I've come to see what is at the heart of that question is what is the single most important thing that I need to be doing? What is the single most important thing that I need to be doing? If you were to go home tonight and put pen to paper, how would you answer that question? Or maybe let me take it one step further. How would God answer that for you? What is the single most important thing that God wants you to be doing? Today, tomorrow, and forever. Well, in the sermon tonight, what you're gonna see is a man asked God that once, and God gave him the answer. What we're gonna see in that answer is, in many ways, the very key to Christianity. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up, turn or type to Mark chapter 12. You're gonna see Mark chapter 12 is a long chapter. There's a lot to cover tonight, but here's the reality. I only speak about half the speed of Kyle, all right? And so we're gonna gonna hone in on one of these sections, all right? And so, by the way, if you're ever having a bad day, go ahead and listen to a podcast of Kyle at half speed, all right? You'll thank me later, all right? So Mark chapter 12, let's look at verse 28. It says this, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And so we're we're entering into this context where Jesus is having discussions with all kinds of religious leaders, okay? And this scribe comes in and he sees that Jesus answered them well. And so you have a scribe who is wise, recognizing the wisdom of Jesus. The way we say that today is game recognizes game, okay? And so he decides to ask Jesus a question. Here's what he asked him. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, this is a very important question for the scribe because religious leaders like him would have found out as they examined the Mosaic law that there's 613 individual commands. You thought 10 was bad. (laughs) Try 613. There was, what was it, Uh, 365 negative commands, one command for each day. Those are the commands that are, hey, don't do this. There was 248 positive commands, do these things. And so for the scribes, one of the games that they would do is they would debate one another. It's like, which of the commandments is most important? That may sound nerdy to you, but we do the same thing, right? (laughs) Who's the greatest ball player? Who's the greatest superhero? Which is the greatest Lord of the Rings movie? (laughs) The correct answer is all of them, all right? (laughs) But for this man, he sees Jesus, and he sees that he's answering these other religious leaders wisely, and he's thinking, this may be my chance. This may be the person who can unlock this question that we've been arguing about for centuries. This may be the person who can finally help me understand what is the single most important thing that I need to be doing. And here's how Jesus answered him. Look with me in verse 29, it says, Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love him with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, for most of you here, this is a very familiar passage. 
You've heard it so many times in so many places. And what it's become for you is probably familiar, right? Um, because, you know, you probably memorized this at church camp growing up or Awana. Your grandma probably had this cross-stitched on a pillow somewhere. You guys see this on social media profiles like Instagram or Snapchat or, you know, TikTok. People saying, hey, look, at, I'm a Christian. You hear this from politicians on both sides of the aisles, usually completely out of context, right? But as we hear this over and over and over again for most of our lives, we become familiar with it, not in a good way. It's like the Pledge of Allegiance. How many thousands of times have you heard or said the Pledge of Allegiance? Do you even know what it means anymore? That's what these verses have become for so many of us, and that's a problem. Here's another problem. This great commandment that Jesus gives us is rarely something churches or Christians are known for actually doing. You know, a lot of times Christians are, are not known for loving God. They're more known for their hypocrisy. They talk about loving God, but their lifestyles match up something very differently. They love the creation more than the creator. Oftentimes, Christians are not known for their love for people. Too often, we're known for our, hosp- our, our hostility more than hospitality, right? For being more inward-focused than we are outward-focused. I would say it's because of the church's failure to live out this great commandment that we are so weak and ineffective in the world today. And so what Jesus is telling us here is something deeply important. What he's gonna tell us here is it's not enough to know this great commandment. It's not enough to be familiar with it. What his invitation for us is tonight is we need to deeply understand it once again Or maybe for some of you, it's to understand it for the very first time. And not just that, but to live it out, to actually live it out in our lives. And so the big idea is this. Followers of Jesus love God with all and love all like God. And so we're going to break down and go deeper into what we see here tonight. The first thing that we're going to see when we look at the first part of this commandment is followers of Jesus love all of God with all that they are. Look with me again in verse 29, it says, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now for the faithful Jews who are listening to Jesus tell this to the scribe, they would have been very familiar with it because what Jesus is quoting is something from Deuteronomy. It's what they call the Shema. It's what faithful Jews would have said twice a day as they rose up in the morning, as they went to bed at night. They would recite this over themselves. But it's in this passage that we learn some very key things about what Christ wants us to to understand. The first is the call. The call that he is calling each of us to is to love God. So let's hear that. We are to love God, not know him, not admire him, not agree with him. Because the beginning and end of what it means to have a relationship with God is love. We love him. If you tell somebody that you're a Christian, what you are essentially telling people is, I am a lover of God. And so it's an identifier, but what we see here is it's also a command. God commands people to love him. And now some people might hear that and it's like, that sounds really petty. Isn't that needy that God would like tell people to love him? The answer is no. Here's why God does that. Here's why it's a good thing that God tells us to love him, because he knows that if we love him, 
it leads to our good. Let me give you an illustration of this. I have four sweet little baby girls in my life, all right? And I think about this often. If there is one thing I want for each of them, it's to know and love God every day of their lives. Because here's why. I know if they're putting God first and they're loving him, then they are going to avoid all kinds of hurts and pains and struggles that come when we don't love God. I love my girls so much, I want them to love God because it leads to their good. It leads to their good. You know, I've heard it said that, this may sound strange to you, but a lack of love for God in many ways is like spiritual AIDS, all right? Because a person with AIDS doesn't die from AIDS. What happens is AIDS lowers the body's defenses to fight against other destructive illnesses. And that's how they die. That's what a lack of love for God is like, is when we do not love God, it lowers our defenses from all types of sins that want to come into our life and destroy us. And so hear me say, God commanding us to love, you, to love him is for our good. He cares deeply about us. It's a good thing. And so we're called to love God. How are we called to love God? You're gonna see an interesting phrase here that Jesus uses in verse 29. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why did he add that in? He could have just left that out. He could have gone straight to love the Lord your God with fill in the blank. You know, it's, it's interesting. Why does he say the Lord our God, the Lord is one? And here's why. In Deuteronomy, when this commandment was originally given, it was given in the context to Israel of polytheistic societies, all kinds of other nations and people that didn't worship one God. This is a really different idea in Christianity to worship just one God. The cultures around them worshiped all kinds of other gods, and it was so countercultural. But we can look back all that, and it's like, oh, that's so antiquated. But really, that's true for us, too, because the natural human heart is polytheistic. Even for us in the church, if we're honest, we can say that we love and are following and worshiping God, but I'm willing to bet that you're probably pursuing other gods as well. You know, for many guys, that may be money or sex or power. For women, that could be affirmation or beauty or achievement. We all are chasing multiple gods in our life, but Jesus is saying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because listen, there's one God who created man, and there are many gods that were created by men. There's only one that is worthy of our worship. There's only one that is really gonna be able to hold all the hope that we put into it. And so we need to have a singular love for Yahweh, the Lord, who is one. Here's what it also means to love the Lord our God as one. It means that we love all of his attributes, not just the ones that we like. Because there are parts of God that we all like, right? His love for us, his grace, his mercy, the things that he gives us. But you know why the second commandment was given? You shall have no graven images of me. It's because what we tend to do is we try to insert the things that we like about God and leave out the things that we don't like about him. Here's how we break the second commandment today. You see this in people's, I like to think about God as thoughts. I like to think about God as fill in the blank. And here's what that is, is people shifting and shaping their view of God based on whatever emotions or feelings they are feeling that day. But God says, that's not how you do it. I get to shape 
who I am. And so our view of God does not come from our constantly changing feelings and emotions. It comes from the word of God that tells us the truth about who he is and what he's like. Here's another way we break the second commandment. It happens in the conversations that we feel embarrassed by God. You've probably been here before. You, you're talking with a friend who's far from God but close to you, and they ask you a hard question about God. What do you tend to do in those situations? We try to soften him. We try to water down his judgment. We try to water down his sovereignty. We try to water down his wrath because if we're being honest, we feel embarrassed by it. But Jesus is saying, listen, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Everything about him is beautiful and lovely and worthy of our praise. What it means to be a Christian is we figure out, man, God, teach me. Teach me how these things, I, I, I feel embarrassed about them in some ways, but God, help me to see that you are good in all ways. Every day we're coming to him humbly and asking him, help me understand, help me to see you truly for who you are. That's how we love the Lord our God as one. And so we love the Lord our God for all that he is, but he also calls us to love him with all that we are. Look with me in verse 30. It says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What word do you hear being repeated over and over there? All. We hear it four times. Jesus could have just said it once, but he says it over and over and over again because he wants to communicate the radical nature of what he is calling us to in this commandment. Because the Christian faith is not just qualitative, it is quantitative. That means that we give all of ourselves to God if we are gonna be loving him and following him. We don't get to choose and pick. We don't get to compartmentalize the parts of ourselves that we give to him. I was reading a C.S. Lewis biography not, not too long ago, and there was a line that stood out to me. It was talking about Lewis joining the English army during World War I, and the line that jumped out to me was, Lewis was willing to give his body to the war, but not his mind. And that's such a picture of us when it comes to our faith so many times, is we're willing to give parts of ourselves, but not all. Jesus is saying, if you're gonna be a follower of me, if you're gonna be a lover of God, count the cost, because I'm gonna call all of you to this. And so how do we love God? What does it look like for us to love him holistically? Well, he breaks it down for us. He says, first, we are to love God with all of our hearts. How do we love God with all of our hearts? I think we do that in three ways. The first way we love God with all of our hearts is with our emotions. Here's what that looks like. That means we love God with our emotions on our best days. We love God with our emotions on our worst days and everything in between. Most of us are good at one end of that spectrum. He's calling us to all of them. And what we do with those emotions on the good days and bad days and everything in between is we run to him with them. How do we do that? Through prayer. Because prayer is inclining our hearts to God. It's where we process the emotions that we're feeling with our God and creator. And some of you struggle with that, processing emotions. You know, I look at the men around the room, you're pretty good with angry and hungry, but the other ones, <laughs> eh, you know, not so much. And so how do we learn to process these emotions, what's in our heart with God? I think we do it through the Psalms. 
Athanasius, he's an old theologian, he said, most of the scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. And so if you're wondering, man, how do I process these emotions, this angst and and frustration or anger with God? There's a Psalm for that. How do I go to God and I process this joy or this hope that I'm feeling? There's a Psalm for that. And so when we do that, we come to our God and we, we give him all of our emotions. Another way that we love God with all of our heart is through our affections, our affections. How do you know if you're loving God with your affections? Ask yourself this, is my heart near and dear to the things that are near and dear to God's heart? Do I love the things that God loves? Do I hate the things that God hates for the reason that he hates them? Do I prioritize the things that I see God prioritizing in his word? The more that you start seeing your affections aligning with those things, the more you know that you are loving him with your affections. Here's another way that we love God with all of our hearts is we love him with our passions. Our passions are the things that we're excited about. They're the things that keep us up late at night. They're the things that wake us up in the morning. There's something that we just can't help thinking about and dwelling on and sharing with other people. My wife has a new passion, embroidery, all right? She loves embroidery right now. She stays up late thinking about all the different projects she wants to do. She's working on some for some of our kids' classmates right now. It's so sweet. You know, she's showing me these things when she's done and we rejoice in it together and hang it up for everyone to see. She's passionate about it. You can take the quietest person, but if you find out what they're passionate about, they won't shut up about it. It's like a guy who's passionate about trains. Oh, I love trains. The Baldwin locomotive on the Polar Express is my favorite. I took my family to see one in Vermont last year. The bell, oh, when it rings, it's amazing. (laughs) When you're passionate about something, you just can't shut up about it. Are you the person that can't shut up about God? What would it look like if God was our passion in that way? We would be loving God with all of our hearts. How are you doing loving God with all of your heart? Here's another way that we love God is with all of our soul. How do we love God with our soul? This one's a little more interesting. It may be helpful for you to understand. What was the soul created for? It was created for three things. The first thing is our soul was created for the supernatural. It was created for the supernatural because here's the reality that our soul wakens us up to is what we see around us is just temporal. There's something more to what we see in this world. This can't be all. That's why when you look at our culture around us, we're post-enlightenment, we should be moving more and more towards atheism. But what do we see? We see spirituality on the rise. Why is that? Because of the soul. It's waking people up to the reality that there's something more. This may be interesting to you, but do you know that people in your life that are not believers are statistically likely to be open to having a spiritual conversation with you? Most of your friends that don't love Christ are open to spiritual conversations. The reason for that is because we all have souls. We are awakening to the reality that there's something more. And we love God when we direct that seeking towards him. Here's another thing that the soul was created for. It was created for um, significance. 
significance. We always have this deep longing and meaning to be doing something purposeful, to be doing something meaningful. I have so many conversations with people about their jobs. It's like, I hate my job. Why is that? Because it's like, I don't see what the purpose is in this. What is the deeper meaning that I'm contributing here? What am I doing handing out towels at the YMCA? Where's the significance here? Why do you see all kinds of middle-aged dads suddenly buying Corvettes and wearing skinny jeans? <laughs> I believe at the heart of it, it's because there's been a disruption in the soul. It's this crippling thought that they're wrestling with of, what am I doing? What am I achieving here? What is the lasting meaning and purpose that I get to be doing here? And if we're trying to find that in anything apart from God, we're always gonna be searching. We're always gonna be wrestling. Here's the third thing that the soul was created for. It's created for satisfaction. I wanna tell you this. You were not meant to walk through life always angst-filled and longing. But that's where many of us are. We're always searching for satisfaction. We're moving from one thing to the next. We're thinking, if I can just get fill in the blank, then I will finally be happy. If I can just get fill in the blank, then I will finally feel satisfied. What is that thing for you? Is it a, a position? Is it a possession? Is it a relationship? Let me ask you something. Look back on your life. When you finally got that thing that you thought was gonna satisfy you, how did you feel? Maybe good for a moment, but did you truly feel satisfied? No, because here's the reality of the soul. Nothing in this world is gonna be able to satisfy it. Nothing that you can hold out and touch and reach is gonna ultimately satisfy you. C.S. Lewis very famously quoted this. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's what your soul is waking you up to. We can only find the answers to our soul's longing for God and God because listen, you are a soul created by God and for God. Another pastor, his name is John Ortberg, he said this. He said, the soul seeks God with its whole being. Because it is desperate to be whole, the soul is God-smitten and God-crazed and God-obsessed. My mind may be obsessed with idols. My heart may be enslaved to habits. My body may be consumed with appetites. But my soul will never find rest until it rests in God. Your soul was made to love and seek God. And so how do we cultivate more of a love for God in our souls? As I reflected on this this week, I could only come back to one thing. We live in the scriptures. We have to live daily in God's word because when we live in scriptures, here's what happens. You find and remind yourself of the eternal hope for your soul. When you live in scripture, you are pointed to the significance and eternal meaning that God has given you in your life that answers that longing for significance. When you live in scripture, you're pointed to the God, 
the only one who is able to meet your deepest longings and desires. Let me ask you, are you loving God with all your souls? The next thing Jesus tells us to do is to love God with all of our minds. Something we've seen over the last hundred years is this movement of anti-intellectualism in the world. And that's made its way into the church. It's this thinking that really what matters is the heart rather than the mind. The way that we feel about things is more important than what we know about things. And that's why you've seen in many churches over the last century that they're moving away from sound doctrine and theology because they elevate the feeling and the experience more than the knowledge of what, what is true. But what we see Jesus saying here in these verses is the heart and the mind are on the same playing field. They're both equally important. That's why here at Two Cities, we're gonna be committed to the heart and the mind because we see them both as valuable. And so how do we love God with all of our mind? I think one of the ways that we love God is through intimacy. Let me ask you this. What do you give primary occupancy in your mind? Let me ask that another way. What do you think about the most? What do you dwell on? What do you read about? What do you watch? What do you listen to? Because here's what happens. When the mind finds something that it deems valuable, it moves towards it. That's intimacy. It's not satisfied staying on the surface. It wants to dive deeper into that thing. Let me ask you this. Think about your relationship with God. Is it something that's at the surface or is it something that you just can't help but dive deeper in to seek more and more intimacy with? To love God with our mind means that we give him primary occupancy over all else. Here's another way that we love God with our mind. We love God with our mind by renewing it. Because here's one thing we know as Christians is when we become Christians, the Bible says that God gives us a new heart. Praise God, it says he takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. But you know what stays the same? Your mind. We see that because Romans 12 gives us the command. It says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, the call for Christians is to, for the rest of our lives, be transforming our mind, to take off the old, to put on the new. I'd be willing to bet for many of you, some of the biggest battlefields in your faith happens right here. It's in the mind. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a famous pastor, he said this, do you realize that most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. You're listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. Because on a daily basis, you have two choices. You can always be listening to yourself and you're constantly feeling changes and emotions based on your circumstances and being conformed to that. Or you can be talking to yourselves about the truth of God about who he is and what that means for your life and your circumstances. What it means for us to be renewing our minds, to love God with our minds, is you need to start doing this. You need to start speaking the truth and preaching the gospel to yourself daily. You need to speak the truth and preach the gospel over yourself daily. Here's what that looks like. 
you start by identifying what are the lies in my mind that I keep believing, that I keep conforming to. And when you've identified that lie, here's what you do. You speak the truth and preach the gospel over it. Here's what that might look like for you. As I look around the room, there's probably someone here who thinks this. I don't like myself. I don't like the way that I look. And here's what that person needs to do. To see that they have been believing that lie and then speak the truth that you are fearfully and wonderfully made by your Father in heaven. That is what is true. And you keep telling yourself that until you start believing that. For the person who struggles with the approval of man, who constantly is thinking, I wonder what he thinks about me. I wonder what she thinks about me. You know what? You speak the truth over yourself that you do it unto the Lord and not unto man because your father in heaven looks down and is satisfied. You speak that until you believe that. For the person who is just filled with arrogance and pride, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You remind yourself that your arrogance and pride is the very nails that nailed Jesus to the cross. When you look at that cross, you can't help but be humbled. And so we speak the truth and preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That is how you love God with all of your mind. How are you doing loving God with your mind? Here's the last one that Jesus hits on. He says we are to love God with all of our strength. Historically, how people have understood that, how we love God with all of our strength is that we are obedient to him. If there was a theme verse for what it means to love God with all of our strength, it comes from John 14. It says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Our love is proven by our obedience. That's a countercultural thing because in our world today, our mentality is my body, my money, my family, my resources, my sexuality. I get to choose what I do with it, right? But for the lover of God, someone who's loving God with all of their strength, they say, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. And God gets to tell me what to do and I happily do it all the way, right away in a happy way. You know, there's the last couple of weeks, we saw people stepping into the waters of baptism and they answer this question. Are you willing to go wherever God asks you to go and do whatever he asks you to do? For the person who is loving God with all of their strength, they don't just say yes to that in the baptismal waters. They say yes to that every moment of every day. Whenever God calls us to do something, we say, yes, Lord. We tell God we love him every moment that we choose to say yes to him in obedience. It's a tangible way to say, God, I love you. It's how we love him with our strength. Another way that we love him with our strength is by taking care of our bodies. We take care of our bodies because we see that what scripture says, our body is a temple. It's where God dwells in us. And I'll be the first to say, listen, this is one area that I know the Lord has convicted me of. I'm continuing to work on it. But let me ask you this. Are you allowing God to have a say in what you do with your body? In many ways, we can go to two, sides of the, two ends of the spectrum. We can be either neglectors or obsessors, all right? 
Here's what neglectors do, and I'm not talking about people who are dealing with the effects of the fall. I'm talking about willful choices that people make with their bodies. We can become neglectors of our bodies when all we eat is food passed to us through a window. You know what I'm talking about? You'll get it, all right? We're neglectors of our body when we never get a good night of sleep. We're neglectors of our body when we refuse to touch a treadmill, when we overly medicate, when we never take a Sabbath. What that's doing when we neglect is saying, God, you gave me something sacred and holy, but frankly, I don't really care. When we neglect our bodies, we are not loving God with all of our strength. But the same is true when we're obsessors. These are the people who worship and serve the creation over the creator. And the way that it works itself out is, man, you hold people hostage to your exercise routine, your diet. You constantly judge people in the way that they look compared to yourself. God finds it offensive when we love and worship the temple rather than the God of the temple. And so we need to get ourselves right when it comes to loving and caring for the body that he's given us. Listen, he has given us our body for two purposes. The temple exists in Jerusalem and in us for two reasons, to glorify God and to bring other people to him. That's it. Your body is not an end, it's a means to an end. And so how are you doing loving God by glorifying him with your body and living out the Great Commission? That's what it's for. And all these things bring it together. What Jesus is saying, you and I love all of God with all that we are. But it doesn't end there. He says, there's one more thing. (laughs) Followers of Jesus love all those around them with all that they have. We see that in the next verse. Jesus says this, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, for Jesus, you can't stop at an all-encompassing love for God. You can't stop there. Because Jesus is saying, you can't love the invisible God without loving visible people. These two things, you cannot separate them from each other. They always have to go hand in hand. It's basically one commandment, this great commandment. Because you cannot love God without loving people, and you will never be able to truly love people if you never love God. Here's the good news, though, is if we can get the first command right, the second one is always going to come with it. Because loving God is an upstream commandment. If we're doing this, if we're loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then everything else is gonna fall into place. That's the good news. And so we're called to do that. And so who is God calling us to love? Everyone. We are called to love all. There's no loopholes, not any escape hatches. We're called to love all. But to make it a little more graspable for us, I look through scripture and it's like, who are the neighbors that Jesus is calling us to? There's four of them that I want you to hear. The first neighbor that you are called to love is the church. You and I are called to love the church. It is inconceivable for us to love God without loving God's people. It's like saying to your best friend, bro, I love you, but I hate your wife, all right? It's inconceivable to God. Here's what God says, Jesus in John 13, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
You wanna give proof that you're my, di- my disciples? You'll be able to do that if you love one another. Our love for the church, both local and global, proves that we are his disciples. And so here's the call for you. Some of you, if you wanna love God with all of your heart, you need to get your heart right with all of God's people. For some of you, what it looks like for you to love your neighbor is to be reconciled to a brother and sister. Maybe that's another believer right here at Two Cities. Maybe that's getting right with another brother and sister in Christ at another church in our city or from another time in your life because we're called to love that person. Here's what happens when that becomes a reality for us. Jesus says that that's a powerful witness. The world will notice when the church loves each other. But you know what will make them notice even more? It's not just if the church loves each other, but if the church loves people far from God but close to them. And so the second type of person that we're called to love is the people right around you. Who has God placed in your life where you live, learn, work, and play? Another way we talk about that here is who's on your frank list? Your friends, your relatives, your acquaintances, your neighbors, your coworkers. And I wanna tell you something. God put every single one of those people in your life for a reason because they are to be loved. And he's giving you the responsibility because maybe no one else will. And so will you be the person who loves the people that he has in his sovereignty placed around you? Here's the third type of neighbor he calls us to love. People who are different from you. Somehow those people never really find their way onto our frank list, right? Usually you find the people that we like because it's like, we like people like us. You look at people, it's like, I like you because you remind me of me. That's great. But if we only love people who look like us and dress like us and think like us and do what us and our families do and value what we value, what's the point of that? Everybody does that. What's radical about that? What sets us apart from the rest of the world? What we see when we look at Jesus is a love that crosses all types of boundaries age and race and sex, nationality, socioeconomic status. God's love is bold in Jesus Christ. And so should ours. Ours should be as well. Love people who are different from you. Here's the fourth neighbor that God is calling us to love. When we hear the word, who is my neighbor, (laughs) it should remind us of another story in the Gospels. It's called the Good Samaritan. Someone asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And here's what he says, your enemy. Even your enemies is who I'm calling you to love. I can be the person that you're tempted to hate. Your ex, fill in the blank. Your mom or dad, who is just frankly an awful parent. Maybe it's your crazy neighbor who keeps getting leaves in your yard. I don't know. (laughs) We're all tempted to hate different people, right? But God's calling us to love them. He's calling us to love people who we are just diametrically opposed to. People who think differently than us. People who vote differently than us. Study came out this year. It says most people are not even willing to live in the same house with someone who votes differently than them. As a nation, we have forgotten what it means to love our enemies. 
I want you to imagine something with me, though. What would it look like if God treated his enemies the way that we treat our enemies? What hope would there be for the world? What hope would there be for us? Thank God Jesus does not treat his enemies the way that we do. Thank God. And so we are called to love our enemy. And church, listen to me. If we can get this right, the world will notice. If two cities can get this right, this city will notice us. And they're going to see God at work. So we love our enemies. We also hear from Jesus how we love them. He says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The way that we love our neighbor as ourself is we treat people with the same kind of detailed care that we would treat ourselves with. It's like we take off our flesh and put it on that person and say, how would I want someone to treat me? I'm looking at a picture of me. What would I want? And when you're able to treat people like that, here's what your life will look like. You're gonna be willing to serve rather than to be served. You're gonna be willing to be wounded rather than to wound others. You're gonna be willing to bear patiently with the failings of others. You're gonna be willing to extend the same kindness and mercy and compassion that we have received in God through Jesus Christ. We're gonna look like the good Samaritan who says, I don't care about the cost. I'm gonna take care of them. I'm gonna give my time and my talent and my treasure. Listen, you need to hear this. Everything that God has given you, everything he has given you exists for two reasons. To help you better love God and to better love people. Do you see your stuff as that? Do you see yourself as a steward for everything God has given you? Are you seeing it as a way to better love God and better love people? Because that's what it means for us to love our neighbors. And so we see, what is the single most important thing that God is calling us to? It's for you to love all of God with all that you are and to love all of those around you with all that you have. Here's how the story ends. After Jesus unpacks this and lays it out for the scribe, here's what the scribe says. Verse 32, and the scribe said to Jesus, you are right. This man who has been studying scriptures all of his life, who knows them inside and out, sees Jesus is right. He said, you have truly said that he is one. There's no one beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself. Listen to what he says. This is so much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Do you know where this conversation is taking place? In the heart of the temple. And all around them, people are making sacrifices and offerings. And what the scribe is saying is, Jesus, if what you're saying is true, none of this can live up to that. This is so much bigger than all these things that we're trying to do to satisfy God. The biggest thing that we ought to be doing, you're saying, is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love other people as ourselves. We are falling so far short. He's starting to get it. 
And hopefully you are too, because this thought should scare you. Because if this is the thing that God is calling us to do, if this is the single most important thing that we need to be doing, you and I have not done this for five entire minutes of our life. The gap between what God requires and what we have to bring is infinite. There's no way that we can ever live up to this. The scribes started to get this, and I hope that you're getting this today. And Jesus sees the scribes' wheels turning in his mind, and he's like, here's what he says to him. When Jesus saw that the man answered wisely, he said to them, you are not from afar from the kingdom of God. He says, you are starting to get it. There is nothing that you could ever do to satisfy what God requires of us. Now you have to make a decision. You've started to understand what this great commandment is all about. Now, what are you gonna do about it? I don't think it's a coincidence we never hear what the scribe does because what I think the author of Mark is inviting each of us to do is to see ourselves in that scribe's shoes. You have an understanding of this great commandment. What are you gonna do with it? You have two options. The first option is to say, I understand it. I'm not changing a thing. I can keep trying to win God's favor. I can keep trying to live my life, try to obey as many of those 613 commands as I can and hope for the best. But here's what's gonna happen. You are gonna live a life and eternity apart from God because it will never be enough. Here's the second option. You can repent. You start by repenting and say, God, I have not lived out this commandment. And I know that there's nothing in me that is ever going to be able to do this perfectly. I need help. You need someone who can take your place and fulfill that for you. And you know where that leads you? Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the great commandments. When we look at Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, you see someone who loved the Father with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind and all of his strength, every moment of his life. In Jesus Christ, we see someone who loved his neighbor, who loved the church to the end, who loved every person whose life intersected with his own who loved people who were different from him, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the broken, the poor, and the needy, he loved them. And more than anybody else who has ever walked this earth, we see in Jesus Christ, someone who truly loves even his enemies. And we see them being loved as himself. The God man who was willing to leave his father's side in heaven to come down to earth and give up everything to come and draw near to us. Who was saying, I will pay whatever it costs to love the world, even if that means me going to the cross. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And I don't know about you, but when I come face to face, with that Jesus Christ, when I see the love that he has for me, I can't help but loving him back. And when I become more awake to that love, 
the easier it is for me to love him with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my mind and all my strength. And when I feel that love flowing back and forth between me and God, here's the result of that, is I start loving the church more. I start loving the people around me that he has placed in my life for a reason. I start loving people that are different from me and I even find the strength to be able to love my enemies as Christ loved me. If you wanna know what it looks like to live out the great commandment, It's not by trying harder. The antidote to disobedience isn't more obedience. The antidote is love. And if you wanna be a church, if you wanna be a person that is living out the great commandment in your life, stop trying harder. Ask God, would you fan the flame of love in my heart? Would you help me grow in an all-consuming love for you? Because I know it's where I need to be. It's what's gonna be the thing that allows me to love all those people around me. May our church be a church made up of believers who love God and love other people well because the world will not be the same. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you, broken and needy. God, this command is good, but it is something we could never do on our own. So I pray for each person here, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the thousandth time, we need you. Fan a flame in our hearts. May we all be people that know you and love you with all that we are so that we can love everyone around us with all that we have. God, through that, would you get the glory and would you win more people to you? That is why we are here. It is the single most important thing that we can be doing. And that can only be done in you. So help us, Lord. It's Christ's name. Amen.